Welcome to Outdoor by 4 Magazine's audio edition of issue 39. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only on the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also on the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief. The Other Side of Nowhere, a four-wheeled adventure into the Big Bend region of West Texas. Overland in the Namib, a journey through the Namib Desert in Africa. Moto Mentor, lessons learned along New Mexico's backcountry discovery route. And In Focus, off-road photography tips and techniques. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing or picking up a copy from the Outdoor by 4 website by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoyed this issue of Outdoor by 4 magazine. The Dispatch by Frank Ledwell editor-in-chief. It was 11.30 p.m. on a Monday night and my family and I were huddled up next to a fire, draped in a Nemo equipment sleeping bag and mountain hardware down jacket, watching a film being projected on the wall while my laptop was powered by a Gold Zero Yeti 1500X inverter generator. The temperature was a balmy 12 degrees outside and yet we were comfortable, even having a good time, despite our power having been out for nearly a day and our water out due to a burst pipe in the room adjacent to my home office. The world around us was dealing with the most extreme winter storm the state of Texas had dealt with during my 43 years alive, and yet the gear I've accumulated over a 20 year span, much of which was costly and questionable at the time purchased, proved to be our saving grace not while in the backcountry but in our living room. Over the years I've come to recognize the value of buying products that initially bleed my wallet dry, but in the long haul, prove their proverbial weight in gold when times get tough, and that very gear is the matter between comfort or dread. Even our Overland columnist and respected author, Jonathan Hansen, has discussed the subject in previous issues of Outdoor by Four magazine, highlighting the benefits of quality gear in a variety of settings. In my case, quality gear has saved me frustration and even gotten me through sticky situations where cheap product would have left me in a serious bind. Just a few examples include ice climbing in Colorado, traveling off the grid along the Cocopelli Trail with our senior editor, Stan Wright, backpacking the south rim of Big Bend National Park, or during this latest winter storm in Texas which drew national attention as millions of Texas residents were left without power and water. Many people here struggled for days as the state suffered from an extensive power grid failure. While our situation at home wasn't ideal, the combination of quality gear we had on hand made the experience mildly inconvenient when it could have been much more serious. As a matter of fact, we even turned our situation without power and water into an opportunity to get out and have fun, taking out a set of sleds we had bought a few years earlier for use at Great Sand Dunes in Colorado and White Sands in New Mexico, to sled down the slopes at a local golf course covered in fresh powder and ice in a setting that rarely even gets below freezing. So what's the point in all this? Consider the gear you purchase and how it can function in a variety of settings, not just while exploring the backcountry, but even in your own home. While I recognize and understand not everyone can afford expensive gear, 
I highly suggest buying the best gear you can afford and have it on hand when an emergency situation arises. Quality gear does make a difference, and it's oftentimes the situations we don't plan for that prove the products you choose merit their cost of admission. Since 1948, the name Warren has been synonymous with adventure, specializing in winches, hubs, and bumpers to meet truck, SUV, power sport, utility, and industrial demands, Warren is the leader in reliable recovery equipment and accessories. From the entry-level VR Evo line to heavy-duty and specialized application winches, Warren has the gear to get you out of any situation, every time. Preparation is a necessity. Warn. Go prepared. The Other Side of Nowhere by Susan Dragu. How's the road to nowhere? asked Mark Doran, our trail guide of the friendly park ranger at the Susueto Ranger Station in Big Bend Ranch State Park. Well, no one has fallen off lately, she responded with a smile that was mischievous, if not a bit diabolical. I did not find her answer particularly reassuring, but neither did I want to know any details, so I moved along, spying a small display of historical photographs in an adjacent room. I was certain we would attempt the road to nowhere, whatever its conditions, and perhaps the less I knew, the better. Gathered outside the station with our group a few minutes later, Mark filled us in about his conversation. She said the road is one, well, not really one lane, and she said there is one place where we'll be on three wheels. Just count on it. This revelation had several possible interpretations. One was that as we drove a narrow shelf road in Texas's Big Bend Ranch State Park, there would be spots where sections of the road were washed out, such that one of our outer wheels would literally be hanging in the air as we crossed. I pictured our vehicle dangling, barely clinging to the mountainside as we struggled to maintain forward momentum and cross the divide, praying we would not fall to our deaths in the rocks several hundred feet below. I chose, of course, to interpret it differently. Perhaps she meant we would get cross-rutted and a wheel would be off the ground? I suspect there are many possibilities, and I couldn't imagine them all at the time, but being talented in compartmentalization, I blocked out the whole thing for the moment knowing there would be plenty of opportunity to confront reality whenever it reared its head. The Big Bend High in the San Juan Range of Colorado's Rocky Mountains, just east of the Continental Divide, the Rio Grande River rises and begins a 1,900-mile journey to the southeast, bisecting New Mexico and forming the international border between Texas and New Mexico before emptying into the Gulf of Mexico. Deep in the Chihuahuan Desert in far southwest Texas, the course of the river shifts its direction 90 degrees from southeast to northeast, forming a long, acute angle, or Big Bend. In its meanders through the Big Bend, the river has carved deep canyons into the limestone and sculpted dramatic rock formations. But the Rio Grande has many personalities, and in some places it is only a shallow stream through sandy soil. Big Bend National Park, BBNP is the area's major draw, one of our largest national parks with an expanse of more than 1,200 square miles. It is also one of the least visited national parks, 
although over the winter holidays its warm weather draws large crowds. West of BBNP lies another huge tract of public land that is less developed. At 486 square miles, Big Bend Ranch State Park, the ranch, is smaller than the national park, but still the largest state park in Texas. It is appealing for its isolation, and for off-roading enthusiasts, its rugged terrain. Bring two spares is common advice for those venturing forth on the ranch's four-wheel drive high-clearance roads. We live in Oklahoma, less than two hours from the Texas border, but Texas is a big, big place, and getting all the way to Big Bend required 10 hours of driving. You might say it's close to nowhere. It was late January 2020, and we were traveling with our friends Chris and Laura Moxley and their Corgi Gatsby in their Jeep JK Unlimited, Mark Driscoll in his 2014 Gen 2 Tacoma, and Mark Doran, our trail guide and videographer in his new Jeep Gladiator. My husband Bill and I were driving our 2016 Toyota 4Runner, dubbed GS, for its Galunda Strasse, or land and street, capabilities. The first leg. Alpine, Texas may sound like an oxymoron, but yes, there are mountains in Texas. The city of Alpine is a high desert jewel nestled in the tall hills of West Texas, or so their Chamber of Commerce claims. And I agree, it's a charming town and a perfect stopover for the trip to Big Bend. One long day of driving from Oklahoma, a night in Alpine, and the next morning, the Big Bend is within easy striking distance. Our favorite lodging is the Maverick Inn, a roadhouse for wanderers, and that's where all of us booked rooms for the first night of our journey. We dined that evening at the iconic Riata Steakhouse, named for the mythical ranch in Edna Ferber's Marvel Giant. The 1956 movie of the same name, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean, was filmed at a ranch outside nearby Marfa, an artsy village famous for its ghost lights. The next morning, we headed west from Alpine, passing through Marfa and turning south on Ranch Road 2810. After several miles of pavement, we hit dirt and stopped to air down. Pinto Canyon was before us, with a road that narrows, drops, climbs, twists, and turns beneath the cliffs of the volcanic Chinati Mountains. As I stepped out of the vehicle to help install the tire deflators, I flashed back to my encounter here a few years before with a good-sized javelina, an animal common to this region which looks like a wild boar but is actually a member of the peccary family. Back then, I had stepped off the roadside for a nature break when the animal detonated from the brush I was heading for. Thankfully, we were both equally startled and scrambled away in opposite directions. This time, I kept clear of the brush and maintained a watchful eye. After another 28 miles in which we met no other vehicles or javelinas, we intersected Farm to Market Road 170 and made a brief stop at the Ruidosa General Store and Hot Springs Airport before heading east towards Presidio, Texas for lunch and then on to Big Bend Ranch State Park's Fort Leeton Visitor Center to pick up camping permits for our first night. A few miles east of Fort Leeton, we entered the ranch on Casa Piedra Road then picked up the main park road. When Big Bend Ranch State Park was established in 1988, there existed within its boundaries about 700 miles of old ranch and mining roads. Today, 153 miles of those roads, all dirt, are kept open. 
70 miles are not maintained, but provide intriguing avenues leading adventurous visitors to some remote desert landscapes. As we angled southeast toward our campsites, we veered off the main road and joined the maintained four-wheel drive Oso Loop. The road narrowed and our caravan slowed as the trail became rocky, framed by gangly acatillo and constricted by white thorn acacia, which scraped the sides of our vehicles, leaving long marks in the layer of dust, our first of the infamous Texas pinstriping of the trip. Clearly, maintenance is minimal enough to keep the roads interesting. Guale 1 and Guale 2 Guale 1 and Guale 2 campsites sound like they should be right next to each other, but in fact are more than three miles apart. Perhaps a bit less as the crow flies. Bill and I and the Moxleys camped at Guale 1, deep in a canyon along a drainage at the upper end of Rancharias Canyon. The two marks went on to Guale 2, located on the edge of the lower Guale Mesa. At Guale 1, we deployed our rooftop tents, ours an easy on, and the Moxleys an eye camper. Luckily for Bill and me, the Moxleys are enthusiastic and skilled camp chefs, and they whipped up a tasty fajita dinner on their propane stove. In another stroke of luck, previous campers had left wood in the fire ring. We brought firewood, but it was still on Mark Driscoll's truck three miles up the trail, and we enjoyed its warmth as darkness fell. For some, darkness is a big part of the attraction here in this certified international dark sky park. With neighboring Big Bend National Park, it forms one of the nation's largest contiguous areas under dark skies protection, manifested through responsible lighting policies and public education. Before the light completely faded, we gazed up at the ridge behind camp, imagining it a perfect spot for the silhouette of a howling coyote, but never saw one, nor, surprisingly, did we hear any at the night. A bit of a disappointment. Mountain lions, mule deer, black bears, and the aforementioned javelina are among other common fauna here, but other than mule deer, the wildlife stayed out of sight. We were quite happy with our home for the night, but the next day we learned that our friends had by far the more scenic sight. Wale 2 is located on a high bluff near the edge of Rancharias Canyon with panoramic views. Park literature describes it as the most remote and by far the most spectacular campsite in the entire park, with solitude that is deafening and sunrises and sunsets that will change the way you think about color forever. The next morning, the two marks confirmed its beauty, but added it was awfully windy in a feeble attempt to make us feel better. In our case, ignorance was bliss. How many Tinajas? Once regrouped for the day, we hopped back on Oso Loop for some more Texas pinstriping two-track popping out on the main park road just shy of Cinco Tinajas trailhead. I had cajoled Mark Doran into letting us stop for a brief hike, as I had been stationary far too long. A Tinaja is a rock basin that usually holds water, and this hike was supposed to take us to five of them. Mark Doran stayed with the trucks and Gatsby, and the rest of us headed up the trail, which soon became steep. Wanting to visit the lower Tinajas and feeling the press of time, we passed the spur trail to the overlook and started downhill toward a creek, which we followed to a closed canyon with a muddy pool surrounded by tall walls of brown stone. We took a few moments to explore, then retraced our steps back up the hill, again bypassing the overlook for the sake of time, then following the faint trail to the upper Tanahas. 
It took us to an upper level of the same stream where we encountered multiple shallow pools, but were unsure what qualified as one of the five Tinajas. We followed the creek back to the road, thinking we'd bagged maybe three of the elusive puddles and left knowing we had missed something, which would undoubtedly have been revealed at the overlook, but we had to move on. At the Sasueta Ranger Station, we picked up our backcountry permit for the night, and that's where we got the lowdown from the Perky Park Ranger about the notorious road to nowhere. The route in question is a shelf road, leading to the interior of El Solitario, Spanish for hermit or loner, the signature geologic feature of the ranch. The collapse and eroded volcanic dome is almost 10 miles across and nearly symmetrical. There are several places where one can easily capture views of El Solitario, one overlook is a few miles beyond Sasueta Ranger Station and accessible by two-wheel drive vehicles. Fresno Overlook on FM-170 offers another vista and there are hiking and mountain biking trails into El Solitario's interior, but the road to nowhere would take us inside the caldera on four wheels, or perhaps three. Tres Papalotes Following the main park road east, we turned off on Solitario Road, which took us to Tres Papelotes, three windmills, the night's campsite. It would accommodate all of us at once and has a primitive toilet, covered picnic area, and fire ring. An abandoned cabin and remains of a windmill testify to the ranching and mining activity of the past. The site is also near the access point for the road to nowhere. When we arrived at Tres Papelotes, there was a white pickup truck, but no one around. Concerned that the presence of the truck might indicate others on the road to nowhere, Mark Doran recommended we wait until the owner returned. The one-way, dead-end trail, originally a prospecting road, is so narrow that passing is impossible and backing could be heart-stopping, perhaps literally. Eventually, the truck owner, Eric, returned from a hike. He had stayed there the previous night and reported that a bear had come into his camp. A telephone pole with deep claw marks bore proof of the animal's visitation. Eric left and we proceeded, piling into two vehicles because the parking area at nowhere would have room enough for only two vehicles to turn around. Mark Darwin drove his Jeep Gladiator with Mark Driscoll as a passenger. Chris and Laura joined us in the Forerunner with Bill as pilot. I sat in the back seat on the driver's side, which turned out to be a good decision. edge of the earth. Soon we were on the edge of the earth, or so it seemed. Actually, we were ascending the eastern flank of the ridge visible from Tres Papelontes on an unmaintained two-track. Lucky for my psyche, I had solid ground to my left. Unfortunately for Laura, sitting on the passenger side, empty space was her view. At the first washout, in a switchback, she bore the brunt of the three-wheeled experience and let out a gasp as the ground fell away beneath her. She chided me for my less harrowing seat selection, although I honestly did not make the choice consciously. I reminded her that I would be in her position on the way out, but it was little comfort at that point. After that first butt-clenching experience, which we easily survived and did not fall to our deaths on the rocks below, we crossed another deep washout or two before completing the two-mile drive. The road just ends, and the spot has little to offer except a great view and a single sign reading, Nowhere. Stepping beyond the sign into oblivion, we glanced back, and there on the reverse of the sign were the words, The Other Side of Nowhere. 
We had arrived, and I wondered at the whimsical signage in this place of isolation. Someone definitely had a sense of humor. Perhaps it was that park ranger with the twinkle in her eye. Painstakingly maneuvering the vehicles in the tiny space, Mark and Bill backed up against the ridge and inched close to the edge to turn around and face in the opposite direction for our descent. We took a few minutes to appreciate the scenery from the inside of the great caldera, then started back down. Having survived the climb, I was at ease about the ride back down, and my confidence in Bill's driving was a bonus. I trust him on two wheels and four, so why not three? With my somewhat exaggerated concerns alleviated, I enjoyed the return trip, and the descent was more relaxing for Laura as well. Back at Tres Papalotes, we set up camp. Having arrived with plenty of daylight, no small feet, in midwinter, we enjoyed a bit of leisure time before Laura and I began preparing vegetables for the evening's hobo dinners. Potatoes, carrots, squash, onions, peppers, garlic, plus bratwurst for the carnivores. Bill got a charcoal fire going in the metal fire pit as each person selected and seasoned their own dinner ingredients and wrapped them in a foil packet. Once the coals were white hot, we nestled the packets into them and waited. The sizzling of bratwurst and well-oiled vegetables and the aroma of garlic, onion, and spices tipped the scales for anyone who hadn't yet felt the pangs of hunger. Forty-five minutes passed and we retrieved our individual meals perfectly cooked. Served with steaming bowls of Chris and Laura's creamy potato soup, the hobo dinners were a hit. Bill kept the fire going with wood retrieved from Mark Driscoll's truck and we gathered around, enjoying the warmth of the flames and the fellowship. Blue sky turned to purple, and the bright glow of Venus in the west led the parade as the stars popped out against the darkening blanket of the night sky. As the evening wound down, we recalled the potential for ursine visitors and put the food away accordingly. In the middle of the night, I heard something rooting around in camp, scratching at something below us. But the next morning, Bill said he didn't think it was a bear, as there were no claw marks and nothing disturbed. And no one else heard anything. Perhaps I imagined the creature had appeared from nowhere and vanished into oblivion, somewhere on the other side of nowhere. Overland in the Namib by Michael Dieter The Namib Desert lay stretched out beyond our dashboard. Having made our way from Windheck to a place where blacktop road meets gravel, we were unsure what to expect ahead. We stood on the precipice of an adventure, new to us on several fronts. My wife Lindsay and I had just arrived in Africa for the first time and we were starting our first self-navigated overland trip. To make matters more interesting, we had just discovered she was pregnant with our first child a few days before our flight. Postponing or canceling our long-awaited adventure was an option we had not bothered to consider. The trip had its genesis years earlier while we were in Sri Lanka visiting the Elephant Reserve and Nudawalwe National Park. There, Lindsay had fallen in love with the wild, and semi-wild, elephants that roam the park freely, part of the country's effort to restore pachyderms to their once wild lands. There she had set her mind on seeing African elephants in the wild, and had talked about it ever since. I couldn't say no when she finally proposed the plan in earnest. 
Although the idea of a self-driven trip through Africa was daunting, it was an objective we had eagerly pursued. Unsure what to expect or how to start, we researched possible itineraries that, unfortunately, landed us in State Department hotspots. In hopes of avoiding the Boko Haram, we narrowed our destination down to Namibia, as the country is relatively safe and lends itself well to the novice overlander. The Namib is the oldest desert on the planet, with unrivaled landscapes and desert adapted to African elephants in the northern reaches. It was an obvious choice for us. With limited time available, we chose a route that would take us to the dunes of Sasasplay, along the Skeleton Coast, and over to Twyfelfontein to see elephants before ending the trip back in Winhack. We crossed the threshold into the unknown as rubber met gravel. The sun beat down on the desert road creating mirages ahead, like a siren beckoning us forward with false promises. We heeded her call into the vast openness, leaving miles of dust and gravel in our wake until we arrived at the lodge as the sun hung just over the western horizon. We watched with wonder as the shadows lengthened, leading into the golden hour before dark. The once barren landscape soon came to life with animals that had hibernated during the heat of the day, as we took refuge on the roof of our bungalow to watch the sunset over Susasvle's desert. When light gave way to dark, the night sky revealed herself in an amazing glory that is only possible in remote areas far from artificial light. We spent hours gazing at the heavens above, wishing we knew constellations, but not caring, as we made our up our own. We lay spread out beneath a canopy of stars, trying to decide on a name for the life we had created, some far too ridiculous to repeat. Sleep eventually took hold and, cradled by the cool desert air, we woke with the dawn, invigorated for the new day. That next morning was a race against the rising sun on the drive to photograph the dunes, whose names are nearly as ridiculous as those discussed the night before. The effort was rewarded though, with light and shadows cast in perfect proportions. Each dune was presented in a unique splendor that seemed to change by the minute with the angle of the morning sun. Our early arrival gave us the opportunity to photograph, as well as time to pause and appreciate the landscape we had crossed an ocean to see. The views of the famous Dune 45 and of the long-dead camel thorn trees of Deadvlay were beyond expectation. From atop the aptly named dune Big Daddy, a sea of sand stretched out miles beyond the horizon in all directions, illuminating how vast and barren the desert truly is. Life, too, exists in those early hours before the sun has had time to cast its scalding gaze on the landscape below. We watched as timid oryx made meals of the sparse desert vegetation between the dunes. Namib's endemic dune larks were out on the hunt for what meals they could find, filling the air with their rhythmic song. We made the most of our time in the dunes and surrounding area, but time is a funny thing in that it waits for no one. With time and short supply, we made tracks toward our next destination, Twyfelfontein. The drive west toward the coast brought us first to the industrial shipping town of Walvis Bay, where Maine's arrival has left scars of progress and industry along the coastline. From there, we followed the coast north to the German colonial town of Swakopmund, where expats and tourists filled cafes and restaurants with a cacophony of human discourse. 
These incursions of industry and human folly on the desert landscape were an affront to the sense of isolation to which we had quickly become accustomed. It was not long into our time in the city that we were longing for the desolation and serenity of the open desert. We left Swakopmund after only one night and welcomed the solitude provided by the skeleton coast as we journeyed onward. The coast is named for the skeletons of ships that dot Namibia's Atlantic coast, their fates having been dictated by its turbulent seas. We stopped briefly at one such skeleton to enjoy the coolness of the ocean breeze and listen to the crashing waves before heading inland. Leaving the coast, we were immediately met again by the searing heat of the African sun. After putting many a mile of dust and gravel between us and the ocean, we were greeted by the smiling faces, cool drinks, and a song on the lips of the welcoming staff. Waiting out the heat of the day in our climate-controlled safari tent, we speculated about our chances of seeing elephants in this unforgiving climate before taking our first game drive of the trip. One handing the steering wheel, radio microphone in the other, our driver navigated rugged terrain with expert efficiency out into the bush later that evening. He had been communicating with another team and had information on the location of a small herd of elephants. Lindsay's excitement at the prospect of achieving her dream was palpable. After a bumpy off-road ride, we crested a hill to find the elusive herd casually walking a dry riverbed below. The herd consisted of several adults and one youngster just a few years old. Our driver cautiously approached to within a few feet of the elephants. Eating leaves from the mopane trees lining the riverbank, the herd paid us little attention. The youngster frolicked between the legs of his mother before darting toward us for a closer look, ears flapping as he charged ahead. He rocked our vehicle when he made contact and explored our front tire with his trunk, as the matriarch kept a watchful eye. Lindsay looked on with pure joy in her eyes as she ticked off several of her bucket list items. To see these elephants not only survive, but thrive in such a harsh environment brought us hope for a species on the brink. They have adapted well to the desert environment. Pressures being brought by humans, both poachers' as bullets and farmers remodeling the land to meet agricultural needs, are stressors driving these magnificent animals to the verge of extinction. With increased tourist dollars flowing into the region, the local people are starting to realize these animals are a resource to be protected, and conservation efforts are on the rise. We had the good fortune to make several similar encounters with this group of elephants before heading back to Windhek and on to other parts of Africa. While we saw some incredible sights as we ventured onward, Victoria Falls from a helicopter, great white sharks from the relative safety of a cage in Gunspy, white rhinos just spitting distance from our open-air Land Rover in Kruger National Park, to name a few. Our time spent in Namibia was the highlight of this trip. There is a freedom and sense of accomplishment one gets from a self-driven overland trip in a foreign land that no outfitter can provide. Also, the sense of adventure obtained from having to be self-reliant in remote stretches of the planet is beyond description. Our initial plan was to camp, but due to the pregnancy, we opted for the safety and comfort of safari lodges in both Sassafle and Twyfelfontein. Both locations have ample camping options, and if we had to do it over, we would opt for camping, without a doubt. There are several rental car agencies in Windhack that offer overland vehicles for rent with rooftop tents for safety. Namibia lit a fire and shortly after returning stateside, we started the process of outfitting our Tundra and Forerunner for local trips in our home state of Colorado and beyond. 
Our son, now nine months old, has two camping trips under his belt, and we have a three-day Montrose to Moab overland trip via the Rimrocker Trail planned in the near future. As our adventures continue, we hope to pass on our love of nature and the outdoors to him. Are you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, four-wheel campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, four-wheel campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com. Moto Mentor. Lessons learned along New Mexico's backcountry discovery route. By Brandon Weaver. The world still exists. My phone vibrates. The damn contraption just found a tower. I turn my bike off and pull the phone from my thigh pocket. The screen lights up the night. It's a text from my wife, Allison. Great pics. Are you in Lubbock yet? How did today go? It's pitch black except for a dimly lit sign on a stucco fence in front of a square adobe building. I struggle to make out the letters next to the silhouette of a bison. My eyes take a moment to focus in the low light. The letters take shape. Armendaris Ranch. The headquarters for Ted Turner's 362,885 acre spread. I'm definitely not in Lubbock. My writing partner, Jared Foster, checks our route on his phone. How much pavement do we have? I ask. He swipes at his screen, up, down, left, right. Looks like 27 miles to truth or consequences. He nudges his helmet, right down 51. A ribbon of asphalt suddenly appears from the last bit of gravel striations signaling the end of Tularosa Road. I text Allison. Longer day than expected. We are just now rolling into T or C. It's a tiny fib, but New Mexico is vast. I feel like 27 miles constitutes rolling in. She texts back immediately. There is no emoji, but the worry is apparent. Is everything okay? To answer that question, we have to go back to where our adventure started. We are on the New Mexico backcountry discovery route. There are 11 BDRs across the United States. The BDRs are off-highway routes specifically designed for adventure motorcycles. The New Mexico BDR is 1,178 miles long in seven segments. It's late October and Jared and I only have time to knock out segments one and two. Guadalupe Mountains National Park, Texas, to Guadalupe Ridge, New Mexico. Technically, segment one of the New Mexico backcountry discovery route begins in Dell City, Texas. However, Jared and I opt to depart from Pine Springs Campground in Guadalupe Mountains National Park at the base of Guadalupe Peak, the highest point in Texas, at 8,751 feet. We wake early, break camp, and pack our bikes. Time to go to work, I tell myself. This trip is the manifestation of a childhood dream, a dream spawned from the pages of Motocross Action Magazine. The 80s era of the MXA Test Rider was a part of my formative years. 
It was a glimpse into the premix-fueled world of the Southern California motocross scene. The magazine's photography conjured excitement. Skilled riders atop shiny new motocross rigs executed fantastic berm shots, tabletops, one-handed wheelies, and all sorts of awesome aerial feats. Those images adorned my walls and notebooks until junior high. All my friends wanted to be Dallas Cowboys. I wanted to be a MXA test rider. I wanted to write about dirt bikes, but West Texas is a long way from Southern California and my writing skills were even farther away. I never became a MXA test writer, but perusing the endless articles and editorials that came every month taught me narrative, tongue-in-cheek humor, and ultimately set me down the path to become a writer. That's how I met Jared Foster. Jared and I pull into a rest stop just down from the park entrance. Behind us, Jutting from an ancient seabed like a rock castle is El Capitan, an 8,085-foot limestone Permian-era reef. Right up the hill and I'll get a shot of you coming down with El Cap in the background, Jared says. I ride up. I zip down. Jared snaps the shot. I pull into the rest stop and he shows me the image on his cannon. No wheelie. No cross-up. It's just me riding a big red adventure motorcycle. Seated. It is awesome. Jared and I are bike packers, the bicycle equivalent to adventure motorcycle touring. Most of our professional collaborations as rider photographer have revolved around bags strapped to bicycles. On one of those trips, I tossed out an idea I'd been brewing for an adventure motorcycle gravel trip across Texas. I'm in, Jared said before I could even unwrap the details. It was on, and we went into logistics mode. First order, Jared needed to get his motorcycle license. He grew up on a ranch where they rode dirt bikes for fun and to work cattle. Jared hadn't been on a motorized two-wheeler in more than 20 years. I've dabbled in all forms of motorcycle locomotion, except the adventure bike segment. I had preferred to experience the backcountry by bicycle, but I could no longer deny my envy of KLIM-clad riders ripping across the Rocky Mountains on quarter-ton machines. Still, we are cyclists, so our approach to any journey is an act in minimalism. Jared immediately planned a shakedown excursion. Both of us are based in Texas, so the New Mexico BDR seemed like a well-suited mated voyage. Jared dubbed the trip Moto Mentor. I would help him with his writing and he would help me hone my photography skills. Jared's innate desire is to educate. He is a professor of practice at Texas Tech University in Lubbock where he teaches photography and visual storytelling. My qualifications? I've crashed a lot of motorcycles. After the El Capitan photo shoot and a 45 mile stretch of pavement, we officially entered the New Mexico BDR. As beautiful as any sunrise, the orange-yellow road sign informs us, pavement ends. A plume of white chalky dust bursts from our machines like a boat cutting a wake through talcum powder. We stop at an old corral for my first photo lesson. Jared instructs me on the virtues of the AV dial and setting it for slight underexposure. I take my camera from my top case, flick it on, and nothing. We pull the battery out, put a fresh one in, and still nothing. The camera is dead. Looks like I'm resigned to talent. 
we cross the valley floor of Crow Flats and enter Big Dog Canyon. I'm on a Honda Africa Twin and Jared's on a Zippy Dual Sport, a 2006 KTM 450 EXC. He's in the lead and I struggle to keep up. I'm not sure who the mentor is here. We're making good time when suddenly my steering turns to mush. My front tire is flat. I stop and Jared disappears into Upper Dog Canyon. Changing a flat has been my biggest fear on this trip. I don't have a center stand, so I start scouting for large cubed rocks to prop under my skid plate. Jared rides back. Flat, he says looking at the tire. I nod as I carry a rock. He dismounts, takes a few shots, and then we go to work. We promptly and efficiently remove the front wheel, replace the tube, and remount the wheel. And, much to my surprise, it holds air. I breathe a sigh of relief. The last time I changed a tube I was 11 and it was on a Honda XL80, I confess. The flat puts us at a time deficit. We make it to the Guadalupe Rim in the Lincoln National Forest and set up camp. We're 70 miles behind schedule and tomorrow is a very special day. Guadalupe Rim to Ruidoso, New Mexico. It is imperative that we reach Ruidoso at a respectable time today. It's Jared's oldest daughter's ninth birthday. We're meeting his family at the Midtown Mountain Campground in RV Park for the celebration. He never misses any of his three daughters' birthdays. The BDR gods do their best to thwart our progress. As we ride the final miles of the Guadalupe Rim, Jared's dry bag affixed to his Coast Guard orange giant loop saddlebag decides to commit suicide, leaping from his bike and impaling itself on his rear wheel. In the process of this calamity, the bag takes a Nalgene bottle with it. The bag is toast, and the Nalgene has a gaping hole burned into its Lexan wall. We ride on fumes to Pignon. The final thwart arrives as a siren song from a brilliant yellow aspen. If there's anything other than a sunset that a photographer cannot resist, it's fall foliage. The quaking leaves glow and shimmer in a perfect hue of light. We have to stop and get the shot. I oblige. I'm talent now. I make two passes. Jared shows me the final image. It is awesome. We're delayed, but we make it to the RV park just in time for cake, candles, and presents. Whew, that was close. Ruidoso to Truth or Consequences. Leaving Ruidoso, we ride along a winding mountain road through deep green conifers, more fall foliage, a stream crossing, and down Nogal Canyon. It is a spectacular display of high country riding. With the mountains in our mirrors, we enter the high desert and skirt the Carrizozo lava field in the Valley of the Fires. The road abuts a fence, forming a T. We stop to orient our trajectory. In New Mexico, do not assume you're headed in the right direction. I send my wife a 360-degree selfie video. On the horizon to our left are two cinder cones called Broken Back Crater, long dormant volcanic vents. Behind us are the peaks of Nogal and Sierra Blanca and the Sacramento Mountains. A sense of contentment washes over me. I'm cradled within two contrasting ecosystems. The mountains feed my soul, but the desert captures it. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Jared feels it too. I love the desert. I love the yucca, the choya, 
Just seeing those mountains on the horizon, it gives the desert purpose, he says. Purpose. The word draws me back to what this trip was about. Mentoring. When my camera died on the first day, my hands-on photo workshop was over, but the learning never stopped. Watching Jared and how he handles the camera, sees light, and sets up shots is an immersive education in photography. He's been writing so well, I don't feel like he's needed any writing instruction from me. How do you feel after a couple of days of solid writing, I ask. You look really comfortable. What he says surprises me. I feel a lot more confident in areas I wasn't before, he says. I've been watching you ride ahead, and it helps me gauge how I handle the bike, use the throttle and engine brake. Writing for me is so intuitive, I never thought I was instructing. Observation and awareness is what makes Jared an exceptional educator. The best teachers are also astute students. Our final 100-mile push is along the western border of the White Sands Missile Range through the Jornado del Muerto, Journey of the Dead Man. We couldn't be more alive. There's a kinetic convergence of energy here, with the nearby Trinity site, where the first atomic bomb was detonated, the propulsion activity at the White Sands Missile Range, and of course the dormant, not extinct, volcanoes that dot the landscape. A continental rift extends through the center of New Mexico. The earth beneath is alive, geologically active. It moves, we move. The night catches us. We ride side by side in complete darkness along Tularosa Road. Jared sticks close to take advantage of the dual headlights on my twin. Riding at night through a foreign landscape heightens the senses. The motorcycles churn an ethereal setting as they careen down a surface coated in caliche silt. The fog of dust dances on the beams of light emitting from our headlights. Creatures scurry in the peripheral darkness as we cut through the night. Oh jeez, was that a goblin? No, no. It's just a bunch of remnants lingering in the road. The lone light at the Armendaris Ranch headquarters is our beacon back to the world back to our lives. It's always bittersweet to end an adventure, but the ending is what gives you perspective on the journey. Without it, you'd never grow. The unanswered text from my wife waits on my phone. Is everything okay? The last three days scroll across my visor like a movie trailer. Adversity, triumph, lessons were learned and gear was destroyed. We're grizzled adventure bike veterans now, dust-coated and steely-eyed. Everything is definitely okay. In Focus, Off-Road Photography Tips and Techniques. Words and Photos by Dan Ballard. If off-road photography feels hard, that's because it is. Shooting a moving vehicle can be technically challenging, and often demands that we consider many elements and how they work together, all while being up against dust, mud, wind, rain, or difficult, uneven terrain. Despite these challenges, the end result of capturing an awesome image can be very rewarding an exciting payoff to the hard work that comes with off-road photography. Even after 15 years as a pro photographer and teacher, 
I'm still learning every time I'm in the field. There have been days I came home with images that conjured thoughts of, what was I thinking? And there have been moments of frustration when a shot of a gnarly obstacle looked like absolutely nothing in the image. Yet, after countless hours spent shooting in the outdoors, I finally nailed down some useful techniques for producing decent images of my off-road adventures. Here are a few things I've learned along the way. Angles. Just like wheeling itself, understanding angles is critical. Pick the right line and everything works out. The entire look and feel of the image is determined by the angles you choose. Out of everything I break down here, I think getting the angles right could be the most important consideration for this type of photography. It all comes down to your movement and where you place yourself in relationship to the vehicle and landscape. When I am on a photo shoot, I am running around nonstop looking at every angle I can as the driver moves. Many times, shooting just a foot or two up or down, closer or farther away, can make all the difference. Of course, these angles are changing constantly as the driver moves forward or flexes the suspension. Your camera lens can also make a huge difference in how a scene appears and affects how close you should be to the subject. For example, an ultra-wide lens can look awesome if you get extremely close to the vehicle, but it comes at the cost of possible distortion and warping, and many images will look abnormal and be unusable. Using a wide-angle lens from farther distances will make the vehicle appear much smaller in relation to the landscape. A telephoto lens can compress the scene and make background elements feel larger than life, but you have to be in just the right place to make it work. I generally shoot with a 24-105mm lens. It allows me to go fairly wide without a ton of distortion and then instantly zoom in for a tighter shot when that feels better. Keep it simple. Regardless of the style of photography, keeping an image clean and simple is one of the most important things you can do. Unfortunately, it is also one of the hardest aspects of photography and something that many struggle with. With practice, you can train your brain to see every major element of an image. You want to be able to identify, without too much thought, how to move or recompose your shot to make it cleaner. The goal is to fill the frame with either interest or clean, simple space that helps to support the main subject. If anything in the frame is not interesting, or not adding to the image by supporting the main subject, or subjects, you should try and remove it. Many times this is possible just by moving around or simply knowing when to wait for a better area to shoot. Photography is as much about what you don't incorporate into the scene as what you do and training yourself to know the right time to pull out the camera is huge. Light is everything. Photography is all about light. The more time you can spend shooting in either early morning, late evening, or in stormy dramatic light, the better your images will be. Simply changing this one element of your photography will yield better results than anything else you do. Aside from trying to plan shoots around mornings and evenings, look for camp shots that have photogenic features. This way you can get up at sunrise to grab some images without leaving camp. If you can't drag yourself out of bed that early in the morning, at least find your camp spot early in the evenings so you are prepared to grab sunset images. Shooting in stormy weather will also take your images to another level. The drama that storm clouds and crazy light bring work incredibly well with off-road images and will almost always add to the story you are trying to tell. While we generally want nice clear days for an adventure and dislike the thought of a storm, when it comes to photography, 
Blue skies are about the worst thing you can have. What gear? You don't need the best camera out there to create great images, but for off-road photography, in which you are shooting a moving subject, often in low light, it is very important to have the best setup you can. I highly recommend shooting with a relatively new mirrorless or DSLR with good lens. If you're not familiar with dynamic range, DR, that is something you should look up as it is one of the most important elements of a great camera. How much a camera has basically tells you how well it handles brighter and darker areas together in the same scene. Most newer, high-end cameras do this very well, especially full frame. A good camera with great glass will allow you to make sharp images regardless of challenging light and fast-moving subjects. It also lets you shoot in wet or dusty conditions without worrying about your gear. You generally don't need a tripod for off-road images, but it can be great for super low light camp shots or night shots. All that said, if you can't afford great gear, don't worry too much about it. You can still get awesome shots with whatever you have. Settings. Make no mistake, camera settings are not the most difficult part of photography. That's like saying figuring out when to be in four low is the hardest part of off-roading. The fact is, once you learn it, it's easy and leaves more mental space to focus on the obstacles ahead. Your camera settings specifically for off-road photography don't need to be complicated either. There are two different general setting arrangements I use that cover the huge majority of my off-road images. If the vehicle is moving slowly or is stopped, I use aperture priority, AV on Canon, with an aperture of around f4 to f8, depending on how dark it is, and auto ISO turned on automatic. I prefer the focus mode to be single, S, so I can choose my focus point and recompose. These settings allow the camera to do a big part of the work for you so you can think about actually shooting. If the vehicle is moving fast, you will still want to be in aperture priority, but generally wide open, the smallest F number you have, and auto ISO should be set to a minimum shutter speed of somewhere in the 1 to 1 range. This helps ensure you freeze the action and get a sharp image. I prefer the focus mode to be on continuous, C, especially if the vehicle is moving towards you. This allows you to hold the focus button down and the camera will continue to focus as it moves forward or away. With both setups, you should have matrix metering, burst mode, I like medium speed, for rapid fire shots and lens or body image stabilization should be turned on. You can then use the exposure compensation button or dial to lighten or darken the image accordingly. If you're not familiar with the histogram, learn how to use it. This will be huge in making sure you have all the details you need when you do the edit to files. You can't take too many. Getting everything just right on an off-road shoot is extremely tough. The more images you take, the higher your chances of getting one that is perfect. Make sure you have several big memory cards so you can shoot on burst mode and capture every angle you think looks good. This doesn't mean you should just stop thinking and quote, shoot and pray, hoping something comes out. Every shot you take should be 100% deliberate and thoughtful. Remember, you want to be thinking about every aspect of the scene and how the finished image might look, and you should be doing it a lot. Editing is key. Editing your images is almost as important as time spent in the field capturing the action. You don't have to spend very long at a computer, or even have Photoshop, but using a decent program that offers more than preset filters or basic sliders is essential. 
For best results, you can work with local adjustment tools to lighten or darken specific focus areas in your image scene. This is in addition to making adjustments to the brightness, shadows, warmth, etc. of the overall image. Consider darkening the background and adding brightness, whites, to your truck to pull the focus towards your main subject. You'll be amazed at the results. I personally use Adobe Lightroom. It is much easier than Photoshop and has everything you need to create great images. The learning curve is minimal and there are plenty of free videos online, including a video course I have personally produced. Keep in mind, image editing is easier than you think once you get the hang of it, and very rewarding when you see the difference it can make. Coming home. It is a common trait among explorers to desire the lonely solitude of a journey, while at the same time craving friendship, connection, and a listening ear. We love to share our stories and incredible journeys with others. Photography is one of the best ways to do this, and mastering it allows us to share those stories with depth and realism. We can pull the viewer in and take them with us. From high deserts to vast plains, over endless mountains and into forests that hold the hammock, we can truly bring the experience back home. Here's what's coming up in issue 40 of Outdoor by 4 magazine. Rick Stowe shares life lessons on the trout stream. Beyond the Horizon, a unique adventure about discovering the solace of silence and the healing power of goat packing. Hisega in the Hills, an adventure motorcycling journey in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And where does the road end? A challenging adventure driving down the Andes into the Amazon. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories, and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 and the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook at Outdoor by 4 and by using the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures.